Before we begin, I thought I would give you one poem in celebration of Richard not giving one. (laughs) (laughs) This is a difficult one, so pay attention. It's from Ogden Nash. God in his wisdom made the fly and then forgot to tell us why. Beach, Jab- Beach Jabberwocky, I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm going to start off reading a passage in Romans. And Romans is what Bill was talking about. And it's a difficult book once you get into it, not to have it consume you and be in all of your thoughts. Because it tells us Who we are tells us what we were, what we are in Christ. It tells us who God is. It tells us why he's angry with sinners. And it tells us about the peace and the joy of being in Christ. I want to read the three verses out of Romans 5 to begin with. And this is Romans 5, 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about Adam sinned originally in the garden. And when he sinned, everything changed. Death came into the world because sin brings death. Before he sinned, no death no corruption, everything was the way it was supposed to be. And when he sinned, everything changed. Death came into the world. Nature became became corrupt. Uh, The ground fought against Adam because weeds came, the storms came, and everybody sinned. And there's never been anybody since then that didn't sin, except Jesus. If that sounds like a hard thing to accept, then why has never has there never been anybody in the history of the world that didn't sin? 
It's the only thing that makes sense. It's what the Bible teaches, but it's also the only thing that makes sense to us. One man sinned, and all of us are descendants of Adam, and his sin was passed on to everybody. And so everybody since the beginning has sinned. And sin is against everything that God has created us to be. And so it brings great anger to God because his creation is, has rebelled against him, refuses to acknowledge who he is. So what does he do? He says it's going to bring death. And it does bring physical death. But it also brings spiritual death. So what's the solution? The solution is one man that doesn't have sin has to take our sin. So who, who could that be? The only one that could be is God himself. So God takes the wrath of God away from us by sending God. He sends his son, who is sinless, lives a perfect life, never sins, always perfectly obeys God, and dies on the cross to take our sin. And the only reason he can take our sin is because he has no sin himself. And so God looks on Jesus and accepts his sacrifice. That's what it talks about, uh, talking about the blood. Saved by the blood. Saved by the blood is shorthand for saying saved by the death of Christ. We're saved if we believe in Jesus. His, our sin, the Bible uses the word imputed, which means our, our sin is reckoned, transferred to Jesus because we believe in him. And his righteousness, his perfect righteousness of never sinning against God and being acceptable with God is transferred to us. It's called the great exchange. And the only thing that we do is sin. We can't work our way to God because we're, we're, we're rotten. Okay? Let's, don't call it anything but what it is. We are, we are tainted. Every part of our being is touched by sin. And the only way to remove it is to believe in Jesus. Anyway, that's what he's talking about. One man brought sin into the world. One man <coughs> brought righteousness. And the sin is great. But the grace of God is super abundantly greater. It's so great that all the sins you've ever done and all the sins of all humanity doesn't stand a chance against the grace of God. The grace of God overwhelms sin. But you have to believe. Because if you don't believe, you're burdened with your own sin. And the wrath of God, which is what the first chapter of Romans talks about, is against you. You have to stand before a God who is so angry that you refuse to believe in the one he sent to take your sin. And the end result of that is terrible to behold. It's terrible to think about. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, <coughs> He that lives in sin and looks for happiness hereafter is like him that sows weeds 
and thinks to fill his barns with wheat and barley. You can't sin and think that you're going to end up with a good life. It's like filling up your house with with garbage and thinking it's going to smell sweet. It won't do it. John Bunyan wrote his life story and called it, it was his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he took the passage from two, he took that title from two passages of scripture. One of them I just read where he talks about grace abounding, the grace of Christ abounding so much more than the sin of Adam. That's where he explains that our union with Christ is far superior to the union we had with Adam in our sin. The grace of God, through Jesus, is super abundantly greater than Adam's sin. Adam's sin brought death. Christ's obedience brings eternal life, abundant life. And the second passage that he takes his title, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, is from Paul's description of himself as the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. Bunyan truly felt that that title <coughs> represented his life. He believed that he was the man who was the least, had the least right to the grace of God. It wasn't that anybody had that right. Nobody has a right to the grace of God. But he deeply felt his own sinfulness and his own sinful nature. And it was only the abounding grace of God that brought him through it. We make the mistake in thinking that God is just like us or very similar to us. One day day we'll be kind and gracious. The next day we'll lose our temper and we'll be walking around with resentment and anger. When scripture says that God's grace does much more abound, it doesn't mean that abounds more than anything else in God. It means that it abounds more than anything else in us. It means it abounds more than anything in us, and no matter how sinful a man has been, God's grace abounds more. The more we think about ourselves, the more we can just lose ourselves in wonderment of the grace of God. When we begin to see ourselves the way John Bunyan saw himself, as completely under the sentence of death, the grace of God becomes that much more amazing. When we compare our sin with God's grace, God's grace always wins. If we could only walk around remembering the grace of God toward us, we who are sinful, unbelievably sinful, a great mess, then we would have nothing but immense gratitude in our hearts toward God. We think about sin in various degrees. This one is bad, but this one is worse, and this one is the worst of all. But God doesn't have degrees of sin. It doesn't take any more of God's grace to deal with one sin than it does with another. His grace is greater than all of our sins put together. 
God's grace did not begin when Jesus was born in a manger or when he was baptized or when he was anointed with the Holy Spirit or when he died on the cross or when he rose from the dead. God's grace existed before Adam ever fell. It came through the eternal son before time was, before time began. And it was it was revealed at the cross. Revelation 13, 8 reads, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before the world was ever created, Jesus was. And Jesus agreed, submitted to the Father, that he would come and take on the sin of mankind that has yet to be created. Nothing takes God by surprise. Again, Romans 5.17, for, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. What came to me when reading through Romans and and so many of these other things was the word consider. And it's all through scripture. And if the word itself is not there, the idea is consider this. Think on this. Put yourself in this place. What what are you going to do with this if you think deeply with it? So consider... Consider the sin and death that we inherit from Adam and consider the righteousness and eternal life we inherit through Christ when we believe. And again, the word consider is not actually in these three verses, but it's in a lot of other places. Consider means to look at it carefully, to think about it in order to understand it and decide. It can be It can mean weigh the information carefully to reach a decision. And sometimes the word count is used as a synonym. Count the cost. Count it all joy. And one of the weighty things that we are to consider is in Romans 6.11. And Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is the first time in the book of Romans that Paul has urged us to do anything, and it's a command. In the next verse after that, Paul tells us what we're all supposed to do and what action we're supposed to take. But before we can decide what we're supposed to do, we have to consider as true what God has already said is true. The first step in anybody's growth and holiness is considering to be true what is in fact true. So God says it's true. We have to consider it as true and base everything on what he says. To live a Christian life, we have to know that God has taken us out of Adam and has joined us to Jesus Christ. That we're no longer subject to the reign of sin and death. But I've been 
transferred to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of his dear son. Consider this. If you're a Christian, you're dead to sin. That doesn't mean you're immune to sin or temptation or that you won't sin. It does mean that you're dead to your old life and you can't go back to it. In Romans 6, Paul says, we died to sin. He says, we were baptized into his death and and buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, the symbolism is we died with him. And baptism is that symbol. Just, Just as Jesus died on the cross, we died. And just as he rose from the dead, when we come out of the water, we rose to new life. He says we've been united with him in a death like his. Our old self was crucified with him. We died with Christ. These are factual statements. These things have happened. They're not, maybe they will happen, or fairy tales. They are actual events. So Paul says, consider yourself Dead to sin. Now here's what consider yourself dead to sin does not mean. It doesn't mean it's your duty to die to sin. This has nothing to do with duty. It has to do with fact. It's not a command to die to sin. How can you have a command to die to sin when you've already died to sin? It doesn't mean sin has been eradicated in you. It doesn't. It says, consider yourself dead to sin. When it says that, it doesn't make you dead to sin. That's backwards from what he's talking about. Paul is saying that because you have died to sin, you're you're to consider it to be so. It does mean you don't let it be the main thrust of your life. You don't tolerate sin. You don't breathe its air. You don't swim in it. You are repulsed by it. Sin can only deceive you if you can't see it for what it is or you don't care about what it is. Now you have to consider yourself alive to God and Jesus Christ. So what changes have happened to make us alive to God? We've been reconciled to God. Early in Romans, Paul used terms like sin and death and judgment and condemnation, wrath. But God lifted us out of all these things and into grace, into justification, into obedience, righteousness, and eternal life. We're no longer the enemies of God, but his friend. We become a new creature in Christ. And we've got a new relationship. Second Corinthians 5.17 and 18 put it like this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself. That's what's called regeneration, being born again. We become something that we were not before.
When you're born again, everything changes. What you used to be, you're not. And what you should have been, you are. The things of God that we didn't have any interest in before, now they become alive. What has changed is us. We're new creatures. We're free from the bondage of sin. Before Christ, we had Adam's nature. And we were a slave to that nature. And it was ruining us. As Augustine put it, we were not able not to sin. Now in Christ, we are not slaves to sin. We still sin, but we don't live in it. We don't have to sin. Now we're able not to sin. We're no longer satisfied with what the world has to offer. All the tangible things that people chase after. They don't have a hold on us anymore. We're strangers in a strange land. In place of things that we've been in place of things that we've we've been made alive to. Well, I lost my thoughts, I'm sorry. We've been made alive to God. He's invisible, eternal, and of unsurpassing worth. Like Abraham, we're looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What else does the scripture tell us to consider? Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It might seem a little strange to tell Hebrew Christians to consider Jesus. But he's telling them and he's telling us to consider Jesus. He's telling Christians he's not talking to pagans. He's not saying, you people that don't believe, consider Jesus. He's telling you Christians to consider Jesus. Why did he have to tell the Hebrew Christians to consider Jesus? Because they were under intense persecution. And a lot of them thought it was easier just to go back to Judaism. To go back to trying to obey the law. To living under the law. And not be persecuted. It was great pressure for them. Actually, the whole book of Hebrews was written to cause them and us to consider Jesus. That means we're supposed to fix our minds on Jesus. The same word consider is used in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, consider the ravens, consider the lilies. It means if one is really to consider it will result in a radical change in thinking and your overall outlook. You really consider what Scripture says to consider. A Scottish pastor wrote this, It's because we think so little about him that we love him so little, trust him so little, so often neglect our duty, are so much influenced by things seen and temporal, and so little by things unseen and eternal. We don't consider Jesus. It's not part of our everyday thought. 
The writer of Hebrews also wants us to consider Jesus' superiority to Moses. Now, perhaps we don't see that as a problem right now, but to the Jews it was huge. The Jews held Moses in such esteem that one of their greatest rabbis said that he considered, talking about Moses, that he comprehended more of God than any man in the past or future ever comprehended or will comprehend. That's what they thought of Moses. But Jesus is the son. Moses is the servant. The same passage tells us to consider the faithfulness of Jesus. We're to fix our thoughts on him. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Consider Jesus. Fixing our thoughts on Jesus takes time. It doesn't happen because you're outside, walking around, saying, oh, isn't this a nice day? It takes time to be in the Word of God. It takes time to be in prayer. It takes time in fellowship. And without these things, there can't be any real intimacy with Jesus. Hebrews tells us Jesus is superior to every other option there is. And it's written to Christians. Christians, consider Jesus in all your ways and in all your thoughts. We don't automatically consider Jesus. If we look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, we see a warning given to these Jewish Christians. Hebrews 2.1 says, We must pay, pay close attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So we don't drift away. Drift away is not a sudden change of heart. It's a gradual falling away. So imperceptible sometimes that you don't recognize it. The warning is to pay close attention to what you've heard. What have they heard? They've heard the gospel. So the danger is we'll drift. We'll stop considering Jesus. And become more interested in other things. And slowly move away from the word and prove that we were really never his at all. What else does scripture say about consider? If you go to Isaiah, it says, it tells us that the Lord's servant will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle with what? His blood. And what they have not heard, they will consider. And it links it in, in Scripture, not in this passage, with communion, with the blood of Christ. Consider Jesus. Psalm 8.3 tells us to consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Consider these things. <clears throat> they, they testify to the glory of God. They testify to the existence of God. Consider the heavens. Psalm 50 speaks about the wicked and tells them in verse 22 to consider this, you who forget God. All our will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. Consider God. And we're told to count the cost. 
when we start something. And to count it all joy with Jesus. This is attributed to Martin Luther. Whether he actually said it or not, I don't know. Sometimes things get attributed to people. It's not quite where it came from. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. What does that mean? It means if the world right now is attacking everybody that doesn't think homosexuality is wonderful and you don't say anything about it, no matter how much you tell everybody you're a Christian, that you're not really confessing Christ. We can't pick and choose to, that, that the world is going to influence what we do and what we say and ignore what God tells us to do and say. Whatever the, the world at any particular moment, whatever their attention is focused on, whether it's abortion, whether it's homosexuality, whatever it might be, where they're going to call you every name you can imagine if you don't agree with them. If at that moment we're silent, we're not confessing Christ, no matter how much we profess to be Christians. That's what Luther said. That's what scripture says. Haggai says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Now he's talking to the people that are supposed to be building the temple when they go back to Jerusalem that's been in ruins. And the people are devoting their time and efforts to getting their own house straight, accumulating things for themselves. They're too busy to work on the temple. They don't have time to do both. And obviously, we come first. Haggai says, consider your ways. Putting your own interest before the interest of God. He says, you better consider these things. And what's that saying to us? The same thing. Consider our ways. Whose interests are we putting first? You know, Romans says a lot about boasting. And it says don't do it because if you realize what God has done and he's done it all and you've done nothing, then there's no room for boasting or bragging. Boasting and believing are opposites. You can't do both. Romans will eat you alive if you spend any time in it. Because Romans does not lift you up and say, wow, look at that wonderful person. Romans says, look at this wonderful Jesus. And this is what he's done for you. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say except what a wonder you are? Lord, to see you and all that you have done and the glory that belongs to you just uh, fills us with awe and thanksgiving and uh, just a desire to know you better, to know you more, and to, to be faithful 
in our testimony. Lord, not to, to pick and choose, but to always choose what you say. We pray that you would forgive us our sins, wash us clean in the blood of Jesus again and again, and that your name might be exalted in all that we are and always say. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>